Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hi there, this is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from across Ireland and indeed around the world. However, you got our show today from our website at techcentral.ie, a smartphone podcast app, or listening to us on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Thank you so much for having us part of your week. Later on in today's show, we're going to be talking to author and futurologist Chrissy Lightfoot about robot lawyers and judges, not just in the future, but now, I kid you not. Also, the potential for computer implants in your brain, or how about this, brain implants into computers. That's futurologist Chrissy Lightfoot on the way later on. But first, Niall has been at the launch of the ADAPT Research Centre at the Science Gallery earlier this week. ADAPT brings together researchers from Trinity and UCD and DCU and DIT to look at the ways that we interact with content. Now, so far, they've raised 50 million in public and private funding to work on projects uh, that involve machine learning, personalization, and augmented reality. Now, I spoke with some of the researchers from ADAPT about their work, and we'll hear from them in a second. But first, he met with the centre's CEO, Professor Vincent Wade. And the first question he asked was, what exactly do we mean by content these days anyway? I'm here and I'm looking around and I'm seeing various different types of technology, but it sort of shows up the varied, the varied world of content at the moment. That you know, When we were all starting on the internet, content was text. That's not the case anymore. So what are you looking at in the centre? What exactly does the term content mean to you? Thank you very much. Well, today we're launching the ADAPT Centre. And the ADAPT Centre is focused on next generation content technologies. And for people to understand what that means, it means content right from its creation, composing it, through to being able to transform it across different languages or being able to extract knowledge out of that content. So understand the language within it and pulling out the facts, pulling out the information. But then being able to recompose it on the fly, personalizing it for you. We all have information needs, but why do we think that the one page would be the same for everybody. Whereas what we're saying is actually the technology now can recompose that page to suit your particular need, whether it be you need to write an article for your um, magazine, whether it is to do a job interview the following day. So we're looking at technology which can transform the content. And then finally, looking at technology of how it can be delivered in new ways, whether it be done by speech, so text-to-speech, speech-to-text synthesis and and verification, whether it be um, virtual reality or augmented reality, whereas we can superimpose the digital into the real world. So you can see not only what the physical world is, but also behind it, what might be things that are under the covers that you can't see. But digital we can render for you using virtual reality glasses or some other eye technique. So we're looking at the whole range of those digital content technologies. What that is, is that's unique in the world. There is no other center which is actually looking at that full content life cycle. And when companies come to us 
they say, well, actually, we need, we're looking at how we can extract the knowledge, but also how we can deliver it to our customers in a new way. So that part of the center's remit then is sort of to bridge the gap between maybe the enthusiast, the gamer, you know, the pure academic and going, look, there are real and valuable commercial applications to this. Just let's work on them. Yes, we, we do look at the, the basic research, the, the real deep research, but we are very interested in how it should be applied. And we're working with all different sectors of industry. So we're working with the ICT industry, the publishing industry, the games industry. We're working with uh, commerce and e-commerce industries. We're working with um, pharmaceutical and medical industries. And we're also working with the educational sector because they all have content problems. They're all looking at new ways of which they can extract knowledge, new ways which they can deliver that information to their customers or to their users or to the individual in the streets to be able to empower them. And what kind of projects are we looking at going on in the centre at the moment? Well, we have two sets of problems. Some projects are looking at the Blue Skies research and some projects are working with industry specifically to try and how can we get these breakthroughs into industry. So if we take some of the industry ones, which might be more practical, um, we're looking at how, for example, industries can mine the information from their customers as they use social media to be able to empower those users, to be able to offer them the correct uh, supports, also be able to understand their opinion so that the, the, the enterprise themselves can uh, work better with those customers. So we're working with Intel in these areas, we're working with um, Microsoft across languages, looking at how we can do translation across the multiple languages. Currently, digital content is seen as the way to get global reach, but you hit the barriers of language straight away. So how do we transform across those languages? Not just the major ones, but the minor ones as well. Because, again, we've, we're reaching a situation around a, a global level where the penetration of the web and the internet is such that we need to be able to access all corners of the world. So you're kind of looking at the idea of sort of content as a, a communication medium, as opposed to something that's maybe just about consumption. That's exactly right. We see uh, content now being much more about a dialogue with the user. Um, and if you think about it, even if you're using a search page, most people will type in the original search and then start changing that search based on answers. That's a form of dialogue. That's text-based. As we move that forward, we're seeing people actually saying, well, actually, I'd like to be able to dial have a dialogue with what I'm looking for and tell it what it should look like. So the system delivers it the way I want it. That's a new way of thinking, rather than us having to do all the effort and then be able to understand what the computer delivers to us and then be able to use it. So the technology, the content technology, really allows a way to seamlessly extract the knowledge we want, transform it into a way that we can more easily consume it, and then allow us to utilize it and interact with it in a new way. And of course, uh, one of the interesting things about Adapt is that it, it kind of already it's a world leader in sort of the content space. So tell us a little bit about the, the academic landscape and, and where Adapt sits in it. Sure. Adapt is uh, it's been launched this year in 2015-16, but it's actually based on uh, 10 years research in the different universities and the partner universities. Uh, we've brought together the top people within the country in the area of digital content technologies to bring them under this one roof of um, Adapt Center. What that means is we've pulled together people from the area of content analytics and analyzing, extraction of knowledge, transforming across languages, so translation, localization, from personalization, which is my area, which is how you personalize content to deliver, and also from user interaction, um, uh, multimodal interaction, speech technologies, graphic technologies, all of those. 
bring them all together to allow them to really focus on world problems with content. Content and communications are going to be the key aspects for driving industry forward in this digital age where we're trying to provide a breakthroughs to make that happen easier. John Dingliana, Assistant Professor in Trinity College, and the project is called InfoCarve. Now, what I'm looking at here is sort of, um, it's not a virtual reality headset because you can see all the way through. So it's sort of a, an augmented reality headset with a, a motion sensor on the top. It's got two cameras, so it's uh, stereoscopic vision. And uh, it's linked up to a monitor on which I can see uh, a human skull in rotation. So tell me a little bit about the project uh, InfoCarve and what applications it, it possibly has. So I'm, I'm immediately thinking medical. Would that be right? Yes, medical and scientific visualization is what we're targeting here. So augmented reality has been uh, kind of popularized for slightly entertainment applications. One thing we're doing here is bringing slightly more complex imagery, 3D imagery first of all, but volumetric 3D um, imagery such as MRIs and CTs. They're quite complicated to look at, but they're also expensive to render. So we're, we're not exploiting, you mentioned uh, motion sensors, but we also use depth sensors. So we need to make sure that these 3D objects are positioned correctly in relation to the real world, and the user should be able to see the real world and the virtual world, but know how, how relatively how far elements in the real world and the virtual world are. Okay, so in terms of overlaying something then, when you're talking about medical applications, how might that transfer to, say, the operating theatre? Yeah, so uh, uh, an example, uh, maybe before we go into operation, uh, operating table, is diagnosis. So if, if, the, if, if a doctor could look at someone's arm and see through, through these glasses the interior organs or bones to investigate you know, where the breaks are and maybe plan a surgery. So it might be intraoperative. Eventually, when these things get more established, you should be able to operate uh, certain, certain types of operations like laparoscopy or keyhole surgeries uh, and be able to see where the, the tip of the scope is without having to look at a, a display screen next to him. To be able to look directly at the patient and see through the, the, the skin, basically see where the, the, the scope and the, the scalpel is, 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 is located within the patient. You know? And in terms of the technology that we're looking at, I mean, you're, you're not building anything from scratch here. You, you haven't had to go sort of to a, a, the, the likes of Intel or whatever and say, look, here's the spec. This is all stuff that's more or less on the market already. That's right. On the market or coming up soon. A lot, a lot of big companies are investigating, sorry, investing a lot of uh, funds in, in the area of developing the hardware for this. And I think there's the, the, we're kind of riding this wave and trying to exploit the, the demand that's going to arise for applications in this area. We're particularly trying to not just build entertainment applications, but things that are going to provide serious benefit to uh, real-world tasks, increased productivity, increased ability to perform serious non-leisure tasks in, in different areas, like scientific uh, visualization and, and medical diagnosis and analysis or, or education as well. Sure, uh, it's Rachel McDonnell. I'm from the Graphics Vision and Visualization Group at Trinity, and my research in, is involved in um, computer graphics, particularly computer animation, and synthesizing animations um, for use in, in the ADAPT project would be synthesizing animations for conversation. So, for example, if we wanted an avatar that was able to speak to us, we could synthesize the speech and the text and everything on, on paper, but then to actually apply that to a virtual avatar and have them look 
realistically um, as if they're speaking to us. That is the area that I'm looking at. So it's, it's mainly about synthesizing animation. Right. So say, would this be a case of uh, maybe a telepresence solution for a company or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So, for example, if you wanted to not, not present yourself on Skype or something like that, you wanted a virtual avatar to do it for you, you could dr- uh, drive the motion of a virtual character to present yourself at a meeting or something like that. But but even further than that, you could actually, um, I mean, that, that could be driven by your actual anima- uh, motions, but o- otherwise you could also synthesize brand new motions. If you, for example, example, have a database of animations that have been created using motion capture by real people, and we can then piece them together in an intelligent way in order to match the speech that you're actually doing. Um, so if you wanted a virtual avatar to talk to a customer or to talk, um, you know, even for, um, uh, you know, for lots of other applications, um, for them to gesture correctly with the speech, um, it can look very jarring if it's not properly gesturing. So we need to use real movement from humans and apply them to the characters and piece them back together in an intelligent way, basically. So this could be a case of, say, if you're working from home or whatever, you you don't actually have to wear a suit. Your avatar can do it for you. Yeah, exactly. You can look presentable anytime you want, yeah. Um, um, and also, you know, um, for different applications, if you, for a more entertainment type of application, you might want to look more like a cartoon, for example. Or you might, uh, yeah, you want your avatar to look more appealing and not quite as realistic. It kind of falls into this uncanny valley um, where people... When you're trying to replicate a real human, sometimes that can cause a negative response. Um, so sometimes then um, um, the industry, game developers or movie uh, developers will will aim at stylizing the characters in order to give them greater appeal. So uh, you could end up having a, an avatar, maybe like a mood ring or something like that. It's sort of like, exactly. I'm home, this is what I look like now. Yeah, exactly. This is what I look like now and this is how I feel at the moment. Or, you know, um, it could change depending on, on the application as well. So um, with the cartoon avatars, um, you know, uh, it's a much more kind of, uh, or it's considered a bit more appealing to look at a cartoon uh, than a realistic virtual human. Um, And it can be quite engaging as well, and um, especially for different types of entertainment. But it's quite difficult to get it right because real artists will um, uh, use a lot of techniques that have nothing to do with physics of real light or anything like that. And they will um, make whatever looks appealing. And they'll, they'll, they'll play with the lighting, they'll play with the shadows um, and make it look, look really nice. But when we do this with graphics in real time, um, the lighting affects how the visuals are produced. So you end up sometimes with um, cartoon ca- characters that don't really have the as, as appealing shadows and lighting as a real artist would do. So that's what this other project is looking at. We're looking at um, um, automating the process of the, the artistic... Um, lighting in a scene. So you can see these, well, there's, there's some examples that we have that um, show that if you use real lighting that we, the way we usually do it in computer graphics, um, you get some unappealing kind of shadows that they look realistic, but they're not artistic. So that's uh, we're trying to aim to replicate that using different algorithms and, and optimizations for that. So you're getting to the stage where what you might look at um, say on the screen or on your Skype monitor or something like that, uh, you're not only into the element of recreation or, or design, but you're also into sort of an artistic representation of something at the same time, automatically generated. Yeah, exactly. So whether or not you want to, the character to appear highly realistic, 
and you know all the lighting and the eyes and the, the skin are replicating what happens with real skin in physics and it's all the different equations behind that um, or you might want something to appear much more stylized um, and both of them present challenges in graphics um, but both are, yeah they're equally equally challenging in different ways <laughs> My name is Arturo Calvo and I'm the senior software architect in Adapt. The project is called Limbac Learning. So what I'm looking at the moment is, uh, it's almost like a, a Google screen, only instead of a, a search bar, you've got a, an option of three languages, of French, English and German. So I'm guessing this is um, a translation project. It's, uh, it involves translation. Uh, so what we are doing at the moment, um, it's a web app to generate audio summaries on the fly, uh, which can be in any language uh, like uh, French, German or English. So um, the way it works, we will um, if we are interested in any topic like uh, Dublin City for instance so uh, we choose the language, the target language, in this case English and we can select as well uh, how much time do we have available so let's get an overview of um, just uh, three minutes. What we are doing at the moment is first retrieving information from different sources such as Wikipedia. We translate um, everything into the target language which is English. We merge the results into a single document eliminating the redundancies that uh, may happen and uh, we summarize it so that it fits in a three minute summary and present it to the user. So uh, what we can see here is uh, the um, the audio summary. The, we can listen to the audio summary right now, and these are the different topics that are being covered in the summary. Okay, so just so I can explain what I'm looking at, we put in a search into the search bar, and uh, what is returned underneath is a series of tiles under different headings like uh, demographics, culture, main sites, history, places of interest, and uh, just appeared underneath is a three-minute audio summary of everything that is uh, in, uh, entailed therein. So it's a summary in English, but you've got different choices of languages to go with it as well. And these are, this isn't sort of a, a click link here kind of a thing, it's a, it's a full presentation. Yeah, so uh, the the idea of, uh, of this project, so we had a set of um, uh, different components that all, all of them have been built in, in Adapt, like the, the machine translation, the summarizer. Um, so everything is uh, made uh, in, in Adapt, and we put all of them together into this demo called Impact Learning just to showcase our research. So this is not a commercial product that we have uh, at the moment, but it's a very good way for us to showcase uh, adapt uh, research uh, projects. Yeah. And in terms of sources that you might use like this, it's a, it's not good. I mean, you can use, uh, say, Wikipedia as a, an example for, for anyone. But you, would you be looking at things maybe like academic libraries, that kind of thing? Of course. Uh, so we we are demoing today with the Wikipedia as a uh, source um, of information because it's a very easy example and uh, as well everybody trusts uh, this information. Um, but uh, we could use any source of content uh, because uh, we can do even if it's in a different language because uh, we do machine translation first and uh, there's a way to eliminate all the redundancies between different uh, sources so uh, we can literally use any source of information that we might find.
And that was our Tech Central editor, Niall Kitson, at the launch of Adapt Research Centre at the Science Gallery earlier this week. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Now, take a listen to this interview with author and futurologist Arthur C. Clarke. The interview is from way back in 1974, 40 years ago. He's standing in front of one of those mainframe computers with a massive air conditioning and machine noise and everything, which you'll hear in the interview clip now in a second. Um, He's talking to a reporter who asked what the reporter's seven-year-old son might expect computers to be like in the 21st century. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, when he wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have in his own house, not a computer as big as this, but at least a console to which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, like his bank statements, his theatre reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen like these here and a keyboard and he'll talk to the computer and get information from it and he'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. I wonder though what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean, if our whole life is built around the computer, do we become a computer-dependent society and a computer-independent individuals? In some ways, but they'll also enrich our society because it'll make it possible for us to live really anywhere we like. Any businessman, any executive could live almost anywhere on earth and still do his business through a device like this. And this is a wonderful thing. It means we want him to be stuck in cities, we'd better live out in the country or wherever we please and still carry on complete interaction with human beings as well as with other computers. Arthur C. Clarke speaking in 1974, describing how we'll all have personal computers in the 21st century that will help us work anywhere. What an amazing insight. I play that as a prelude to our next guest. It's a lady who was named in the 2015 list of the world's top female futurists with a particular view on the world of law. She's just written a book called Tomorrow's Naked Lawyer on how to survive our changing world between 2015 and 2045. Chrissy Lightfoot, you're very welcome to the show. Hello there. I'm uh, really pleased to be on. Thank you very much. Listen, tell me, in your book, you talk about robots working within the legal system. What's your vision of what may happen? Uh, well, over, over what time frame? Basically, um, artificial intelligence, cognitive computing already exists in the legal world, and uh, some of the law firms and lawyers use them. I've actually called them contract robots as such. So although they're not these fluffy, delightful, metallic little things running around the law office, um, in essence, basically, robots are existing and doing loyally kind of work at this stage, you know, doing some deep research, helping with contracts, uh, insights as such. Um, so they actually do exist. So, you know, we're not talking about something that's terminator type wandering around the law office. We're talking about an intelligent machine that's supporting lawyers in their daily activities. Um, it's not to say that my vision for the future in the next decade and two decades of search is that we, we will advance to, you know, if you're wearing wearable technology, but then embedded technology as search, it could be that we have enhanced functions in our brains as such, whereby the intelligence of the machine with embedded technology as such, you could have what I would describe as an i-cyborg lawyer, which would be part human, part machine as such. And, uh, and if you think about it, that's not too absurd because when you're talking about cyborgs anyway, such as Paralympians who have 
you know, um, robotic arms or robotic legs as such, um, and are actually controlled through the brain now as, as such. Uh, I'm talking about the level of intelligence where you're integrating machine intelligence with human intelligence. Now, just so, uh, as, I, so as I can catch up with you, Chris, <laughs> all right, you're saying that there are computers or software or computer programs that are already helping uh, automate the process of law to some extent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you say in the form of like, you know, negotiating or writing up contracts that they're doing this. Um, I, I would say that, uh, well, the best example uh, to, to give there is, say, um, Raven Technology, Raven Ace or IBM, where you're, you're actually taking structured data and pulling out facts, or you're taking lots of masses of unstructured data um, and then coming out with insights which are able to, for then a human lawyer to actually make an informed decision on. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to make that differential between cognitive computing, which is what IBM Watson is as such, and then pure artificial intelligence where you're talking far end where the computer starts to learn for itself as such and you're using design algorithms. So I think it's important not to confuse the two. Certainly at this stage, a uh, uh, machine intelligence is not actually drafting uh, a physical legal document. They're looking at legal documents and interpreting that data and helping the lawyer come to informed decisions and giving the evidence of where they found the information from as well. But you'd think that in the next 30 years we may have some software, yes, machine, a computer, a robot or something like that that is actually drafting. Yes, oh. I do. Wow. Um, uh, yes, I do. I, I, I was actually at a debate a couple of weeks ago at SEPA, the Intellectual Property Association, hmm. um, and we had uh, two of us, two futurists against two patent lawyers and basically the the uh, remit there was that this House believes that within 25 years a patent will be filed and granted without any human intervention. And um, we actually put our case forward and, and the patent lawyers did as well. And the audience were thoroughly convinced that basically, yes, um, within that time frame, there will not be any human intervention at, at all. Because, you know, if you look at how uh, quantitative computing, artificial intelligence, design algorithms, um, and then even the... The, the brain systems and, and how things are evolving in the states with, you know, Google Brain and the classes, the Obama Brain as such. You know, when we look at the evolution of AI as such, it will get to a point where superintelligence will, will be there within five years, basically. You know, I was with Peter Waggett, who is the head of emerging technology at, at IBM down in Hursley in Winchester now, a couple of years ago. And, and, he, and he said basically that, you know, it's not a question of if computers will be more intelligent, it's merely when, and that's within five years. Another thing you mentioned was that um, kind of human-assisted computing or, or or vice versa. Are you talking about kind of putting a computer chip into somebody's brain? Um, uh, to be honest, I don't think that's too far away. Uh, you know, it has been tested on rats and, you know, things and telepathy and, and, and looking at that kind of technology. We have, had, we have actually put um, chips into people's arms. That has been tested over in Scandinavia in the last year or so where a company... You know, is, is actually using an intelligent chip that can actually, you know, you're paying for your lunch or you're opening doors with it or getting through, through security systems or getting the photocopier to work. So embedding embedded technology in the human being is actually underway now. So I, I guess we're only a step away from actually doing it in more vital organs. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, what do you think? Because when I, was, when I was thinking about this, I kind of thought, okay, I can get the whole thing of a, a computer or a robot or something like that kind of looking at the law, because the law is very black and white. In fact, it's probably one of the problems of it. But computers are very good at black and white and facts and that kind of thing. Do you think that we are going to look at one year in the future where we have robot judges? 
I do, yes, I do. Um, you know, it could be quite a way off, but, you know, we're actually starting along the path regarding, you know, the justice system court at low-level um, litigation kind of stuff and thinking, well, how can we take out the, the amount of humans involved in this so we can make the process slicker, faster, better, more accurate? Um, and, you know, I do believe if you look at it this way, eBay has operated in, in essence in that kind of format. And I guess where we, what we're doing in the UK is looking at the eBay format and thinking, well, how can we actually really deploy that in our British justice system? Uh, so I do, I do actually believe that for the low-level kind of quick stuff that could be done, there's no need for a human judge to be sat residing um, over the, the lower-level quick kind of cases as such because, you know, they should never get to a point where you're needing human intervention. It's becoming co it's costly and it's time-consuming. Um, as for, you know, the high-level, really important criminal, even fraud case or whatever, no, I think, you know, it's going to take a long, long time until uh, the public, in fact, uh, and even the judiciary would even trust that the machine can make a level one decision of that nature. And I think we're getting into dangerous ground if we do. Mm. Um, if you take the example of how, you know... Um, IBM Watson is used now in, in medicine. Basically, you know, it's, it's used in, it started off in on, oncology. So, you know, we're talking about people who have cancer in individual cases where the, where the, the technology supports the, the surgeon and the doctor to make the informed decision as to, well, we look at all this data. If we look at this individual now, what would be the prognosis and, and the answer? Well, the machine, the, the robot helps with that as such. But ultimately, the level one decision stops with the surgeon, the oncologist. And I believe that that's where we will be with judges and top lawyers, you know, for, for some time to come in the legal ecosystem as well. And I suppose the next stage after that then is, is robots or computers having their own artificial intelligence and being able to think and possibly even act like a human. Yeah. Um, and from from your point of view, then, uh, because you're you're in law, and what I love about you is, you know, you have these fantastic foresights of what the future may hold, and then you're thinking, well, how do we legislate for this, or how do we handle problems as they occur for things that haven't even been invented yet? You're an amazing woman. Um, but <laughs> if if we, if we get to robots with artificial intelligence that think and act like human beings, what does that mean that the robot will be accountable for their actions? Once again, this is a this is a really hot debate actually because then we're getting into really about ethics and morals and all this into a completely new realm. But I think, you know, where we are now as as a, as a nation, as as humanity, you know, as, as we evolve as such, then I think it goes without saying that basically um, liability, responsibility, accountability will stop with the human being because basically I see us as we are the overlords is, is, is probably a better word, um, as, as the overseers of the machine, because basically you cannot allow a machine to, to, to make um, life or death decisions. Um, one of the hotly debated um, examples has been, you know, should, should machines actually be used in war and, and how should they be managed and, and led kind of thing? And should they be able to actually make the decision to, to kill another human being? Well, I mean, obviously, similarly, you know, I always make a, an analogy that basically we have to look at this in, in law. It's just as important because as IBM Watson was used in oncology, well, in medicine, basically we use artificial intelligence because it's important because it's, you know, in oncology, it's, it's, it's life and death decisions. Um, in law, we have life, death and taxes. So, you know, basically, you know, what we're actually using this technology for, we have to be very, very careful in how we oversee it and how we manage it. And um, I think we're a long way off actually allowing the machine to make a, a level one decision where you're talking life, death or taxes.
That's very, very advanced stuff. Let me ask you about something a little bit more uh, uh, basic and where you see it going in, say, another, you know, 20 years, 20, 30 years, whatever. Uh, mm. But um, the internet, just in general, the internet and social media, what, what's your view on where that's going? Wow. I mean, you know, I think um, we're, we're, within a very short period of time, I think the the social media aspect is going to go into the virtual world more so. And where we've uh, dealt with a lot of um, uh, internet-based for business and leisure and pleasure, where it's been, you know, finding relativity is in how we can relate to other people or other businesses and even how Google searches, you know, has, has moved from key keywords to semantic. I think it's going to go to what um, a scientist described, a good friend of mine, Jazz Razul, as resonance. So that, you know, it's, it's far deeper meaning. So you're going to have more meaningful searches, more meaningful relationships as such. And I think that's going to come on board within the next five years even. Um, and then stepping into these virtual environments where that resonance can be um, in, in, in an image format as well. So that we can actually start to do business and um, meet new communities in the virtual world and do business in that world as well. That's, that's how I see it going in a very short period of time as well. I mean, um, there's lots of virtual headsets coming out now. Uh, the virtual reality um, technology in itself is becoming more robust. Therefore, you know, where we've actually moved from Internet and one-to-one emails and um, uh, one-to-one social streams, I think it's very much going to be more about collaborative networks as well. Have you seen the movie Bicentennial Man? Oh, yes. I mean, this was years ago, wasn't it? Was it the 80s with Robin Williams? That's that it. Have you, have you seen it? the yeah. Terminator movies? Absolutely. And have seen you seen all. And you've seen <laughs> iRobot and everything. No, because it's funny. Yeah. It's what you, you, were, you were describing and you were saying in a very practical way, this is what it's going to be, be like. And that's what I saw in those movies. Am I, is, mm. am I getting the gist of what, what you're at? Absolutely. I mean, in, a lot of people would have watched, you know, Bicentennial Man. I, I actually, I actually, I will admit, I only watched it about a month ago. <laughs> And I and I was shocked because I thought, crikey, you ever, you know, came up with this idea 20, 30 years ago? I think it was the 80s, wasn't it, Dusty, actually? Mm. You know, and that's a long time ago. And, and, you know, back then people think, oh, well, this is just science fiction. It'll never happen. But what always happens is science fiction becomes reality, you know, because it's set off as a challenge for the technologists, scientists, uh, futurists, um, media people, um, you know, and they actually think, could we actually make this happen? You know, hoverboards. You know, that was in the 80s with Back to the Future. It has just become a reality this year. So, you know, we're thinking, well, science fact, science fiction, it becomes a reality at some point in time. So I, I don't doubt that, the, you know, the vision that the people had way back in the 70s and 80s won't, and, yeah. will come to fruition in our decade, without a doubt. Well, I don't, I, I don't doubt it either, which is why I kind of started off our, our conversation today with that little clip from Arthur C. Clarke from like 30, 40 mm-hmm. years ago, describing mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. cute it would be today. And he was so right. Chrissy, uh, Chrissy, Lightfoot's uh, book is called Tomorrow's Naked Lawyer New Tech New Human New Law How to Be Successful 2015 to 2045 and you can find out more about it and buy a copy at entrepreneurlawyer.co.uk For now Chris thanks for joining us on the show Thank you very much I really appreciate it That's it for this week's show Remember to keep in touch with Irish Tech News with hourly updates daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself to Stewards, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.
Ciao.